So John chapter 20. And uh, we're going to begin at verse 11. John 20 from verse 11. And we'll keep on coming back to some truths from this passage in the course of the, the three talks. Now Mary, that's Mary Magdalene, stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this she turned round and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. He asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned towards him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord, and she told them, that he had said these things to her. Amen. May God bless his word to us today, and to his name be the glory and the praise. It's uh, really nice to be with you here at the, the well um, again. Actually, I've, I've not been well for the last year or for the last couple of years, and this is the, the first conference I've done since the last time I was here at the well. And uh, I'm just hoping I, I remember how to do these things. That's all I can say. Um, I have a friend who preached out in Africa once, and over in Africa they're very demonstrative. And uh, if he was preaching well in a way that they were appreciating, they would hoop the air with delight and get up and do a wee dance and so on. But if he wasn't doing so well, it worked the other way as well, because they would bury their heads in their hands and they would say, Oh, Jesus, please help him. <laughs> so maybe you'll be saying that in the course of today as I try and get up to speed at uh, speaking at conferences again. I, I just want you to turn and to, to share with your, your neighbor. What, what's your favorite name or your favorite title for, for Jesus? Just think about that for 30 seconds. Some of you have gone white. You didn't think you were going to <laughs> have to come here and do anything today. But um, just think for, well, that's given you 30 seconds now. So just turn and share with somebody what your your favorite name or title for Jesus is. Okay, is that giving you long enough? That's, um, <laughs> some of you obviously know longer names or titles for Jesus than I do, just the <laughs> length of time you took to share that. But you know, I, I find that, of, of course, there's many names and titles. You know the old hymn, there's an old hymn that maybe isn't sung very much these days, join all the glorious names of wisdom, love, and power that ever angels knew, that ever mortals bore, all are too mean to speak his worth, too mean to set my Savior forth. There, there's no end to the number of names and titles we could give to Jesus to describe or sum up who he is and who he is in the experience of his people. I find that from time to time I just come across new ones that I like. One of my favorite writers is Brennan Manning, and uh, I'm using just a small book of devotions, daily devotions of his that last for about 40 days. And th there's one of the devotions I read not terribly long ago one morning in which he addressed Jesus as the one completely free from self-loathing. I think that's a really good title. 
You know, how many of us actually secretly loathe ourselves? I don't know if that's true in England, but it's true in Scotland where we tend in churches. This is how cheery we are. We dress up in bright Presbyterian black on a Sunday. (laughs) And self-loathing seems to be in part of our DNA almost. So it was very refreshing to come across that title. It's another way of just saying we're beloved, that we're not to loathe ourselves. We, go in, we really go in for the self-loathing a bit too much up in Scotland. But you know, there's a, a title that really surprises me. It's not that it surprises me, but who uses it surprises me. And it's what we read in John chapter 20 there together. We read about Mary Magdalene and her seeing the risen Lord. Now remember what we're told about the, the story of Mary Magdalene. We know that Jesus had cast out seven demons from her. That must have been an amazing, amazing experience. But you know what really interests me? It's when she sees the risen Jesus. I would have expected her to cry out, Savior. I would have expected her to cry out, Deliverer. What does she actually cry out? She cries out, Teacher. Do you not find that surprising? I find that really surprising. I would have expected her to shout out, Deliverer, because of her dramatic experience of being set free. And it is a dramatic experience when somebody is set free. I remember when I first came to Thurso and a a mother phoned me up and said, Can I bring my daughter to see you? Now, normally in Scotland, that means they want to arrange a marriage or a baptism or something like that. But I just felt God saying it's demonic and it will be dealt with tonight. This is going back 25 years. And the girl was brought over and at first it was difficult just to to get her to come in to the, the man. She was just terrified. And I was a young minister at the time. I didn't really know what to do. I did something that I, I wouldn't do now. I said to her mother, if you just wait in this room with Morag, I'll, uh, my wife, I'll just uh, speak and pray with your daughter. She shared with me that she had been hearing voices coming at her through the television and through the the shower. She'd lost the ability to read and write. She hadn't slept for a considerable amount of time. She said there were voices within her all the time. And I said, is there a voice within you now? And she said, yes. And uh, so I just said, well, I'm asking this voice in the name of Jesus to say who it is. And she said, it's just saying it's servant of Satan. And I said, can you ask this voice, do I have authority over it in the name of Jesus? And she asked it and it said, yes. I said to her, have you ever thought of asking Jesus into your life? She said, as a matter of fact, I have, but I've never done that. So she did that. And then, friends, I I didn't know what to do. But believe it or not, they don't teach you about casting out demons when they train you as a Presbyterian minister. The Church of Scotland has enough job believing in God, <laughs> let alone the devil. And so I said, well, we'll just pray. And we, we prayed, and she just fell asleep. It was as simple as that. When she woke up, the voices had gone. She'd recovered the ability to read and write. She's now got two degrees from a university. She enrolled the very next day. She's happily married with a family. That has never come back in 25 years. Now, friends, deliverance can be a dramatic thing. But, you know, I think the reason that Mary calls Jesus teacher, And I think that what's precious to this girl, who was on the phone to me just, she's now a woman, of course, she was on the phone to me just uh, this last week. I think what means just as much is to be kept in that place of freedom. Of course, there's trumpet moments. But trumpet moments without a process don't actually lead to very much. 
Didn't Jesus make that clear himself? Do you remember in Luke chapter 11, he talks about a demon going out of somebody and going into the desert and looking for somewhere to stay and then finding that he can come back into a house that's all swept clean. And the end state of the person is seven times worse than before. And I think that's why Jesus is called teacher by Mary Magdalene here. That she appreciated the process, not just the moment. She'd not only been set free, but Jesus had taught her how to live this new life and how to walk in that freedom every day since. So there are trumpet moments and there are process moments or times or seasons. And that's actually the way that the Christian life works. Don't we see that, for example, in the life of Jesus himself? What about the trumpet moment of his baptism where Jesus said over him, you are my son whom I love and you bring me great joy. He would never forget that moment. But what happened after that? The whole process of living that out. He had to live it out in the face of temptation when he was brought into a place of lack and hunger. He'd to trust his father. He had to bring it into the whole process of thinking about his ministry. Will I jump down from here and gain myself a following? Or will I do it my father's way? And the whole story after the baptism is an unpacking of that trumpet moment in the process of living and temptation and relating to one another and accomplishing his mission. So even in the life of Jesus, there had to be process. He couldn't survive on the trumpet moment. You know, it's very interesting. I was saying that um, uh, this is the first conference that I've spoken at for a year. And uh, I remember when I first got into Speaking at conferences, God told me it was going to happen. But the reason that the invitation started to come was that back in 1994, I had a fresh trumpet moment when God just broke into my life and he revealed his love to me in a new way. It was in relationship to the famous or the infamous Toronto Blessing, and probably just the very name of that will divide us here. But I remember going to a meeting to do with the Toronto Blessing, absolutely furious at this thing. There's no way that this is God. But I went there with a need that God had never yet met. And it was the belief that I was loved if or loved when. And the trouble is, when you believe you're loved if or when, the goalposts just keep on moving. You never reach there. When have I done enough? When have I achieved enough to be secure in somebody's love? And God just came to me at that meeting. And somebody just came towards me and said, what's your name? And I said, Kenny. They never laid hands on me. There was no pressure. There was nothing. I was expecting nothing to happen. And they simply said, Lord, would you bless Kenny? And I was picked up off the ground, flung back. And I remember distinctly what I shouted out. I shouted out, oh, no, that's what I shouted out. <laughs> and then I shouted out, at last, because as I lay on the floor, the face of God, the judge, who could never be pleased, was just pushed away forever. And center stage came the face of the Father, who loved me. And that experience was the, the door opening into being asked to go and speak at conferences all over the place and in other nations too, for that matter. But, you know, I, I found that the trumpet moment doesn't last. 
if it doesn't lead to a process by which you think through the truth that you've encountered in the trumpet moment and bring it into all aspects of life and all aspects of experience. And so I want to think with you today just in a, in a very personal way about some things that I've learned in the process of the last two or three years. Uh, up until January, I was living with a diagnosis that would have meant a poor survival rate beyond three to five years. And they've actually changed their idea about that, which is obviously good news. But I'm still not well. I, I still have a lung problem, and it's a, a chronic lung problem, and it saps my energy. But in the process of this last couple of years, I believe that God has taught me things that are precious. That just living in the trumpet moments, which is what the renewal scene seems to encourage us to do, I've learned things in the process time that I couldn't really learn through a wonderful experience. And I believe the things I've learned have been very, very precious indeed. And uh, so I, I want to um, share them with you. Let, let me tell you what one thing that I've learned. And uh, I, I think this is a word from God for somebody um, here. Part of the process of not being well was uh, involved a, a biopsy where they took away uh, three different parts of my lung just to, to test for various things. I, I'd never been in hospital before. I'd never really been ill before. I've kept very well over the years. And I remember very distinctly, just a few days after coming home from hospital, the very day I came home from hospital, I, I stopped taking my painkillers. I just thought to myself, I don't need them. People were telling me in this time of recovery, God will really speak to you. You'll have amazing times with God. C can I tell you, I didn't have any amazing times with God. I just felt unwell, and I felt very tired. And after two or three days, I did ask God to speak to me, and the first thing he said to me was this, listen to the sounds of the distress of your own body. I didn't know what he meant, but he said to me, he said that to me one day, and that very night, I, I woke to hear myself whimpering and crying out in pain. I woke up my wife, and she said, do, do, do you not know you've been doing that every night since you came home? I hadn't heard the distress of my own body. See, part of the Father's love for us is that he remembers our frame. According to Psalm 103, he pities us like a father pities his children. He has compassion on us because he knows that we're dust. He knows our frame. And why is it that for so many believers, our weakness, the fact that we're dust, the fact that we're frail, the fact that our bodies register pain, the fact that we need rest and sleep. Why do we find it so difficult to admit these things? I wonder if there's some of us here today, and actually the, the first step in being well is to acknowledge our distress. That's not lack of faith. It's not lack of belief. It's not lack of even believing that God wants to heal you. Being honest about your distress will not stop you receiving your healing. 
Do you remember it says in the Bible that the Father is looking for those who worship him in spirit and in truth? It doesn't just mean the truth about who he is. It means the truth about what's really going on in me. And don't we all have a tendency to want to bring our very best selves before God? Well, I want you to redefine what is your best self that you can bring to a God who knows our frame, who knows our weakness, who remembers we're dust. The very best thing you can offer him is your weakness. I think I maybe shared with you at the well before that uh, when I went to my present church, which is an area where there's a, a, a lot of needs, it, it really, really irked me. It got me really annoyed that there was um, people interrupting my preaching because of their emotional needs. They couldn't just sit there for half an hour. They were in and out the toilet. They were talking to one another in the vestry through the glass doors, and I could see them, and it just annoyed me. So I thought, I'm going to do something about this. And I said to them the next Sunday, I said, you know, when you come here, will you remember that the idea is that we're here to worship God? And I quoted that song, you know the one, forget about yourselves, concentrate on him and worship him. And I said, would you please do that? It wasn't really because I was wanting them to focus on God. I was just annoyed that they were interrupting my preaching. I'll tell you what happened the following Sunday. One of our self-harmers, and there was a group of them at the time, I saw her getting up and I was annoyed because I thought, she's not listening to me. And she went through the glass door and I could see her going into the toilet. And what she did in the toilet was she took a piece of glass and she stuck it into her knee and she drew it up to her thigh. And then she came back in and went on with worshipping God. She'd only obeyed what I'd told her to do. She'd left her need outside. She'd come into the church. She'd tried to forget about ourselves, concentrate on God and worship him. But she couldn't do it. So she dutifully went outside, attended to that felt need, and then came back in and focused on God again. And the following week, I repented before the congregation, told them that I'd just been annoyed, told them that I would never allow us to sing again the song, let us, you know, forget about ourselves, concentrate on him and worship him. Because that's not true worship. True worship is bringing the truth of me to the truth of God. It's bringing all of me to all of God. Why was it that I could go ahead and stop my painkillers, and yet during the night my body was whimpering in pain? simply because I thought that was the spiritual thing to do. Ignore the body. Ignore the distress. Just focus on God. And I think part of the process that I've been learning and the Father's been teaching me more of himself in this process of illness and recovery is this is where so many of us go wrong. We somehow feel ashamed in Christian circles to admit distress, whether it's of body, soul, spirit, or whatever. And as a result, we keep our true selves out of the presence of God. So where's your distress today? Is there a cry in you that needs to come out? I, I mentioned deliverance before, and sometimes, you know, deliverance can be noisy. But sometimes what you see happening in Christian ministry settings, people think it's deliverance, but it's actually emotional release. It's just that cry that we've squashed. 
being allowed to come out and express itself. So the first thing I would say that I've learned about my father in this process, and it's been a tough process, it's not been a trumpet moment, it's just been a slow process, is that he really cares about my distress. He really is a father who pities his children. He knows that we're dust. Why is it that in Christian circles we often feel we have to keep up this pretense rather than admitting, I'm really hurting, I'm in real distress. And let's make it possible for people to say these things without shame. It doesn't mean they're losing their faith. It means they're discovering exactly how we are made. We're just a handful of dust. But somehow God has loved and breathed upon to give us life and to give us new life in Christ. So that's the first thing that I've learned. Maybe there's something there for you to learn. I just want to, as I say, share these things that I've been learning myself. The second thing that I think I learned is simply this. It can be a battle when you're going through difficult things, whether it's in relation to your health or circumstances, whatever it may be. It can be a battle to work out where the real battle is. What do I mean by that? Well, when I was uh, in hospital, a a friend gave me a book. And they said, uh, we know it's not cancer that you've got, but we want you to read this book. And it was a a book by somebody called Paul Mannering. And uh, he works at the, the church in Bethel in Reading where um, Bill Johnson is the senior pastor. And that's a church where they do see amazing miracles. They, they really, really do. I have a, a friend who went over there, and he said the presence of God is just so real. You just want to stay there, and undoubtedly things are happening there. Good things are happening. Miracles of healing are happening there. Now you imagine being in a church that is worldwide renowned for miracles of healing and you take prostate cancer, which is what Paul Mannering had. He's one of the senior leadership there in Bethel Reading, but he wasn't healed miraculously. He said he learned two things in the process. Number one, he, he came to believe and to understand that healing by medical means is not second-class healing. Do some of us here need to hear that? That healing by medical means is not second-class healing. We'll not go down that route for the time being. But the second thing he learned was in a conversation with Bill Johnson. And Bill Johnson just... I think it was the day that he got the news that he had this. He, he asked him to come into his office and he sat Paul down. And he said, now, Paul, where is the real battle? And Paul began to realize that the, the real battle wasn't to do with faith for healing or anything like that. The real battle was to hold on to the goodness of God. You see, it is really hard when you're facing something really difficult to hold on to what we sang, that God is good all the time. And all the time, God is good. And I thought to myself, well, I don't have any problem with the goodness of God in what I'm facing. And in one sense, I think it was being true because I I, I said to my congregation, you know, if God heals me or doesn't heal me, it doesn't affect his goodness. I said, for me, it's enough that he sent his son to die for me. Even if that's all I knew, I, I would follow him to the end of my days. No turning back. That in itself is enough for my loyalty and my faith and my trust. 
But sometimes we say things and we sincerely mean them, and I did sincerely mean that. But an interesting thing happened as I read this uh, battle that Paul Mannering had just to hold on to the goodness of God in the face of a, a life-threatening illness. He, he said to read the Psalms until you find your voice. Because, of course, in the Psalms, there's so many different voices. There's so many different tones. Sometimes there's tones of exuberance and joy. Sometimes there's tones of faith and trust. Sometimes there's tones of doubt. And where are you, Lord? How long is this going to go on for? And so I decided, just as I was lying there in hospital, that I would, I would just read through the Psalms. And it was an interesting experience because I found that as I read them and started to read them, they weren't speaking to me at all. I, I just couldn't have a deep enough connection with what I was reading. But I decided to keep reading just as um, he had said to do. So I, I, I did keep reading and eventually I just came across this in Psalm 27 and verse 12. I am still confident of this. I will see the goodness of God in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord. It was the first part that really got to me. I am still confident of this. I will see the goodness of God in the land of the living. And I realized what I didn't really realize before, that actually somewhere, because that was the verse I noticed, that somewhere in what I was going through at a level that I maybe wasn't aware of yet, I, I was struggling just to believe that God is good all the time. And all the time God is good. And that whatever's happening to me, I didn't necessarily take this as a promise of healing at the time. I took it as a promise that every day he would be good to me. And every day I could encounter his goodness. And at that time, there was still this prognosis hanging over me. And I thought, well, I don't know if this is a promise that I'll live or die, but I'm taking it as a promise that every day I can experience the goodness of God. If I was to ask you what the essence of God is, I wonder what you would say. Another way of asking that question would be, what is the glory of God? The glory of somebody is their essential person, their essential being, the, the, the thing about them that makes them most them. So if I was to ask you, what is it about God that, that makes him most who he is? What is the glory of God? I wonder what you would say. Uh, turn with me to Exodus chapter 33. Exodus chapter 33. I just find this very interesting, and it's something I'd never really noticed before this uh, process that I, I've been through myself. Exodus 33, and we'll just read from verse 12. Moses said to the Lord, you have been telling me, lead these people, but you've not let me know uh, whom you will send with me. You've said, I know you by name and have found favor with me. If you're pleased with me, teach me your ways so I may know you and continue to find favor with you. Remember that this nation is your people. The Lord replied, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. Then Moses said to him, if your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you're pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing you've asked because I'm pleased with you and I know you by name. Then Moses said, now show me your glory. In other words, show me who you really are. Show me what it is about you that makes you, you. And what do we read next? And the Lord said, I will cause all my 
not my holiness, not my righteousness. I will cause what? All my goodness to pass before you. And I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. We've always taken that verse, that if we saw God in his awesome holiness, we wouldn't be able to survive it. What is actually being said is if you could see God in his goodness, it would kill you. You, you couldn't actually take in how good he is and survive. When I had that experience of the love of God back in 1994, I realized why flesh and blood cannot live in the kingdom of heaven that will have to be changed. Friends, every cell of my body was dissolving in the love of God. The love of God would kill us, not just this holiness. We couldn't take it. We couldn't live in it. What we are going to be like one day, we couldn't cope with that. You know what it says in our Bible? That the righteous will shine what? The righteous will shine like the sun. Could, could you bear the brightness of your sun, of the sun? It would kill you. We've got this idea that what would kill us is because we're sinful. If we saw the holiness of God, we would die. God is saying to Moses, you've asked to know who I really am. I am good, and I'm good all the time. But if I showed you the full extent of my goodness, you would die. So I'm going to hide you in the rock. You'll see the back view of my goodness, because it's all you'll be able to bear. And we're living for that day when we will be changed and we'll be able to endure the love and the goodness as well as the holiness of God for all eternity. Why is it that in, I don't know if it's the same in Christian circles in England, but up in Scotland we tend to magnify badness. We tend to exalt in the self-loathing that I was talking about earlier. As though somehow that pleases God, that we go on and on and on and on about our sin to him. Do you think he likes listening to that? I've been reading a, a book by Richard Wurmbrandt, who's imprisoned by the communists in Romania. And much of that time he spent in solitary confinement. He says it's very interesting, the silences that there are in the Bible. So Jesus never asked anybody, what are you sorry for? And that's interesting, isn't it? Again, I don't know whether there's a difference between Scotland and England, but, you know, up in Scotland, if a child says to their parents, sorry, the, re the, the reply they'll get is, sorry, you don't know the meaning of the word. Or, or sorry, what exactly are you sorry for? You don't get that in Jesus. And yet I've taught and I've read, you know, that we must go into great detail about our repentance, etc., etc. Do you really think that God is terribly interested in the whole sordid detail of our sinfulness? One of the greatest preachers of the last century was Leonard Ravenhill. And he was a brilliant teacher, a brilliant preacher. And I remember being at a conference where his son, David Ravenhill, was speaking. And he said, do you really think when we get to heaven that God is going to take us to a bookshelf in his library called Sin? And he'll say to you, do you want to see the rarest sin ever committed? Here it is. It was committed by a man in Nepal back in 1524. Friends, we magnify badness. We've made an art form of it. So Jesus never asked anybody, what are you sorry for? 
And we never read of anyone in the Bible coming to Jesus with a long prayer of repentance. Is that not interesting? And yet in our circles, we magnify badness and repentance, which are both truths. We magnify the strictness of God with a zeal that he would not own. Friends, have you been brought up with a, a type of Christianity that actually keeps you in a place of self-loathing? I'm not sure if I've really repented. I'm not sure if I've gone into enough detail. I'm not sure if Jesus really accepts that I'm sorry. Are you still living in that place, what you need to be saved from, or have you come into what you've been saved into? The love of God, the goodness of God, that he wants to pour into your life day by day. You know, this is a, a conference organized by the Well Healing and so on. How are you going to believe God wants to heal you if you don't believe he's good? If you're so aware that you're bad, if you're so aware of all the reasons why he shouldn't bless you, that you're focused so much on that, that you cannot believe this simple truth, that as well as knowing your weakness, he himself is goodness through and through and wants to do good things. It's interesting, is it, in John chapter 9, where there's the story of that healing of the man born blind. What, what are the questions that the disciples ask Jesus, first of all? It's all about human badness. Who sinned? Was it this man that sinned? Was it his parents that sinned? Jesus just moves the discussion. He says it wasn't because of his sin or his parents' sins that this have happened. This happened that the glory of God could be revealed. The essence of God's glory is goodness. So what does he do? He does something good for the man. He simply heals him. Are you focusing so much on all that you may have done wrong, even if it was to cause yourself some illness, because we can cause ourselves some illnesses. Are you focused so much on that that you cannot believe that Jesus just delights to hear your sorry and he doesn't rub your face in it? He just wants to do something good for you. So there's a couple of things that I've learned in the, the, the process. I just want to apply them for just a, a wee while. But I want you to hold on to these truths. Because they're things that I've learned about the Father that I never learned at the height of the Toronto blessing, lying on the floor, my body dissolving in the love of God. I have learned it in a place of weakness, in a place where I've struggled to accept weakness and distress, in a place where beyond knowing something in me was struggling to hold on to God's goodness. And I wonder if that's where some of us need to begin today. I'm distressed. I've been praying about this in my health, this in my family, this in my circumstances. Other people have been praying for years. I'm just distressed by the whole thing. And maybe some of us need to actually admit, God, I'm struggling to see your goodness in this. 
I do believe that you're good all the time, and all the time you're good. But I'm aware that something deep down is beginning to struggle. You know, let me tell you some of the implications. If we, if we really could emphasize not the badness that we've been saved from, but the, the goodness of God that we're saved to live in day by day, let, let me just say some implications that would actually come from that. Number one, our evangelism, our outreach to other people would be more lovely and less ugly. We had an amazing visit from a man called Chris Duffett. Have you ever heard of Chris Duffett? He was president of the Baptist Union, and he came to help us a couple of weekends ago in terms of how to reach out to our parish. And he gave us some lovely ideas. One of the one was almost based on Heidi Baker's stop for the one, and he gave us all a white paper bag, and he said, now go and fill it up with two pounds of you know, goodies, and ask God to lead you to somebody and just give it to them. You know, I found an interesting Scottish reaction going on. It wasn't so much about the two pounds of stuff that I didn't know how to put in a bag. I managed to go over that with a bit of difficulty. And then, but it was more, I, I was looking for the person that I felt God wanted me to give this to. And I saw this lady and I felt, I think she's the one. Because I prayed about it and saw somebody dressed in purple sitting near a door. And there was a lady dressed in purple sitting near the door I'd seen just as I woke up that morning. But blow me, just as I was going towards her, my, my associate minister went towards her with a football that he'd bought. And she had a wee boy with him. And he, he just explained, you know, we're here from the church. We just want to give you this. And she looked a bit surprised. You know the battle that went on in my mind? But, well, you don't want to spoil the woman. She can't have the carrot cake that you've got in your bag. As, as well as a football. And then I thought, but, but, but that's the person I've been led to. So I went up and I, and I said, you know, we're just doing this today from the church just to remind you that God is good. And, and the community we live in is a community where people really struggle. We said, we just want you to have this so that you know that God can surprise you with his goodness every day. And that, then we said to her, is there anything we could pray for you for? And she said, um, I really just want to have a happy life. You know, years ago, when I was a, a strict evangelical, I would have got laid into her and said, you want to be happy? You can leave happiness to one side. The question is, are you holy? Are you reconciled to God? That would have been the way my evangelism would have gone. But I said, well, we'll pray for you that you'll have a happy life. Have you ever remembered the verse that says it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance? And that somebody might well just come into repentance because you do something good for them. Doesn't need to be in your face. Doesn't need to be strident. Remember, there's no long prayers of repentance or acts of repentance when people meet Jesus. But when Jesus shows friendship to Zacchaeus, what does he decide? Lord, if I'm going to give half my goods away to the poor. And if I've wrongfully taken tax from somebody, I'm, I'm going to restore it fourfold. All because Jesus had asked himself to tea which in that culture was just a way of saying, I want to be good friends with you. When we believe in the goodness of God, I think evangelism becomes lovelier and less ugly and maybe more fruitful 
then we've got faith to believe. Second thing that happens when we believe in the goodness of God, that it's there in our lives every day, is that our lives become lighter. They become lighter because of thankfulness. I don't know if you've, uh, if I've told the story in the well before, but Mike Breen, who used to be over in Sheffield, um, he was out in Africa somewhere, I can't honestly remember which country, and he was hit with something that meant for a whole night he was just vomiting into the, the toilet. And in typical fashion, he, he saw Armitage Shanks and he began to wonder, what, what happened here? Did a Mr. Armitage meet a Mr. Shanks at a porcelain convention? What happened? And, but he was really ill. And he was told the morning, well, we don't know what you've got, but you've got one of three things, and they're all fatal. So they put him into hospital. And Mike Breen must be about 6'5", or thereabouts. He was put into a four-foot bed, which would be fine for me, but wasn't wasn't fine for him. And through the night, an Anglican, uh, sorry, a Pentecostal nurse came in and said to you, um, are, are you a Pentecostal? And he thought, well, no, I'm an Anglican, but I think I know where she's coming to. And she, he said, yes, I'm a Pentecostal. I believe in the Holy Spirit. And she said, uh, well, I would like to pray for you. She started to pray for him. And then after she went out, God said to him, do, do you remember when, when you were being sick into the toilet last night? that you just finished saying a prayer, Lord, teach me to be thankful. And Mike Breen said, yes. And God said to him, well, this is where you begin. And Mike Breen got a wee bit uppity with God, and he said, excuse me, Lord, but thankful for what? And he said, well, you could begin with that nurse that's just prayed for you. So he thanked God for the nurse that had just prayed for him. And then he got back into his sort of cocky ways and he said, and I thank you that I'm lying in a four-foot bed and I thank you that the electricity is going on and off. But then he got out of that attitude back into true thankfulness. And as he started to thank God, he noticed that all the, the wee lights and the machines seemed to be going up the way. And the next morning, the hospital staff formed a cordon and clapped him out of hospital, saying, we've seen a miracle today. See, when we believe in the goodness of God, we start to notice things that we've not noticed before. And we start to be thankful. And there's something about thankfulness that lightens and lifts our spirit. God notices thankfulness. Do you remember the story of the ten lepers? And they were all healed, but only one came back. And Jesus noticed that. He said, where are the other nine? We're not all healed. You know, the Bible says that when we offer God a sacrifice of praise, we actually prepare a road for him to come to us and show us his salvation. It's easy to praise God and thank him when everything's going well, but when you are six foot five and you're lying in a four foot bed, that's a sacrifice of thanksgiving and praise. It costs something. And according to the Psalms, when we offer that sacrifice of thanksgiving and praise, we build a road for God to approach us by and to show us his salvation, which, of course, is simply another word for healing. So when we believe in the goodness of God, our evangelism will be less ugly and more lovely. Every day will be lighter because of thankfulness. Third thing, I'll be given a purpose for living. 
I can do something to show his goodness every day. God really challenged me when I was walking through the streets in Edinburgh not terribly long ago. He challenged me to go up to somebody that I had never met and give them a sum of money, which wasn't huge, but I couldn't afford it. But I knew I'd heard the voice of God. So go up to a complete stranger, give away money that you can't afford to give away. And then he said to me this, do you not realize that if you're living from my goodness, which is limitless, you've actually no less after you've given something away. You know, we tend to measure ourselves out. And we actually think, I've not got the time. I've not got the gifts. I've not got the money. But when we live from the goodness of God, which is limitless to the extent if it hit us in a wonder it would kill us, then actually when we give something, we've got no less. Because we're not living from our limited supply, but we're living from the goodness of God. If you believe in the goodness of God, that it's there in your life every day, then today and every day you've got something to offer. It might be money. It might be time. It might be a listening ear. It might be practical help. It might be a way that God has gifted you by a gift of the Spirit. But if we're living from his goodness, we've always got something to give. And I think the last thing I would say is simply this. Not only will evangelism be less ugly when we live from the goodness of God, not only will every day be lighter, not only will I share his goodness and be able to show his goodness in some way to other people, but actually people will see something in us. I wonder if, if, if you ever think to... Does anybody notice anything about me? I read a wonderful story, maybe I've shared it here before, of someone in, the, in an office setting who thought, I'm not going to um, evangelize by word, I'm just going to let my life shine. And, and they were there for about two years before somebody said to them, there's something different about you. And they thought, yes, the strategy has worked. But then they followed it up by saying, yeah, there's something different about you. Are you a vegetarian or something? <laughs> but you know, if we live from the goodness of God, because this is a world of bad news. If we live from the goodness of God, your life will shine in a way that you're not even aware of. I said I've been uh, reading a book by Richard Wurmbrandt and time's marching on, but let me just close with this and then we'll um, have, have ministry time together. It's a, an amazing story. He says that something happened in Odessa. An underground church wanted to baptize 20 people and they thought the best place was in a fish hatchery. The caretaker went to bed earlier and so the baptism took place there. But the next day, the caretaker went to the president of the local Soviet, and he asked to be given another job. Why? You will never find a more suitable place of work. No, I won't go back. The hatchery is haunted. Last night, I saw 20 beings that looked like men and women, but in reality, they were something else. Beauty that was not earthly radiated from everyone. They sang songs unlike anything we sing in our pubs. Then they entered the water one by one, and when they came out of it, I had no doubts anymore. They were unearthly. I cannot explain what they were, but I can't go back. Friends, were any of these 20 people aware that light was shining from them?
Probably not. But it was. And one of the best ways for our light to shine in a world of badness and darkness is just to believe that on the throne of the universe is a God who is good all the time and who wants us to live in this world spreading his goodness. And if we live like that, more than we know, our light will shine and people will see something that you maybe never even knew that you had. Let's just be still in the presence of God for a moment.